Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. I say this every time, but this is a super special treat um, for, for myself and podcast listeners because t- today I'm joined by a two-time guest, which doesn't happen very often, I guess because the podcast is pretty new. Um, but I'm joined by Ryan Keyes, the CEO of Triple Crown. And listeners will will know that Ryan joined us um, a long time ago, nearly 40 episodes ago, on episode 39 in February of last year. Um, so, Ryan, welcome back to the podcast. All right. Yeah, appreciate it. And we yeah, well, worth mentioning my, uh, you know, I'm a co-principal of Triple Crown with my with my partner, Nathan. But, uh, but thank you. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, co-principal. My apology. My, my sincere apologies. <laughs> no, okay. all good. Okay, no co-principal. We'll clarify that in that. We'll clarify that in the notes. Um, but so, so Ryan joined us in. I mean, today is April. I'm sorry, it's April seventh, Monday, April seventeenth, twenty twenty-three. Um, and we'll timestamp this with oil prices and everything. But you joined me last year, February second, twenty twenty-two. Was episode thirty-nine. This is episode eighty. And um, oil prices, you know, were a little bit higher then. But I mean, we've mm-hmm. had. It's been a pretty wild ride. That was pre-war Ukraine. Um, at February 2nd. Yeah. I mean, that was pre-war in Ukraine. Um, oil prices were up, things were amazing. And it was 87.93 then, um, for WTI. And more importantly, I think net gas was 541. That was a pretty big deal. Um, and mm-hmm. we averaged, end up averaging, you know, getting net gas prices last year, well over six bucks in MCF. So that was big. And today we're 80.83. Um, and Brent is 80, 84.70. Henry Hub's sitting at 227. So obviously we're, we're half of what we were back then. Um, and, you know, Dutch TTF is 1330. We got the 30 year mortgage just sitting under uh, 7% at six six. Um, 0.61. We got the 10-year yield of five. Um, uh, th- sorry, 3.593. Lots going on in the in the uh, tr- on the treasury space on what the Fed's going to do. That is definitely weighing on oil prices today. But um, Ryan, I know there's a million things you probably want to talk about. I know you know that there's a million things I would like to talk about. Um, your private company, you can be a little more candid. You can talk. I don't need intimate details on your your assets and operations and proprietary stuff. But I'd love to know. Um, you know, a year in, we talked a lot about your production and inflation. Your production actually looks good, but I'd love to get into a little bit of that. And then we can talk about, you know, some bigger, broader stuff and oil prices and OPEC and all that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the you know, privates, um, you know, that's that's where the, most of the growth has come from and, and the Permian or really all of it. Uh, you know, public, public folks aren't, aren't growing very much. And um, it was a lot easier to do that, uh, 2021, 2022. I mean, like you mentioned, uh, about a, exactly a year ago, you know, pre-Ukraine invasion, um, uh, oil and gas prices, especially on the gas side, were, were higher. And everyone knows that, you know, Permian uh, companies produce, uh, you know, a good amount of gas. Most of our revenue comes from oil, triple crowns no exception, but are very sensitive to gas prices. So all in, we're actually right now, we're worse. Uh, on the on the price front than we were um, you know, last time I was on, on the on the show, um, and things have gotten more expensive. Um, you know, we were talking we talked a little bit about inflation last time, you know, cost inflation. And, um, you know, right this second, we're looking at you know maybe a little bit of deflation. You know, from say Q4 of last year to you know where we are now, maybe it's a little bit softer, but a tiny bit. We're still materially above where we were a year ago and uh, that squeezed the the, the margins uh, pretty significantly for uh, for producers for EP companies granted it's coming down from what was perhaps a historic high or a historic uh, you know best uh, best year 2021 22 in terms of free cash flow but um, uh, no it, it is harder to grow right now uh, for a variety of reasons uh, you know, again not the least of inflation and the you know, lower prices that's, that's not to say we're in a bad situation it's just you know maybe it was an a plus last year and maybe we're at a b plus right now still pretty good so can't complain yeah and let's just i just want to remind listeners sort of where you guys are at so you guys are in the um which you know we talked about before you guys are a pretty cool and unique company and that you're sort of in the in the southern portion of of mm-hmm. midland um mm-hmm. and so you're outside like 
you know, when I, I've, I've had Matt Gallagher and different private companies on the podcast and something I think, um, you know, I'm, I don't want to discount that this is a, it is a different year. I, I'm, I think you were very honest about um, that, you know, the inflationary environment even then and the cost increases you were seeing and I, more private companies were. And now we're, we're slowly getting, you know, the, the public companies have to admit this in their earnings calls. Um, but at the same time, that 20, you know, between 2020 and now, there's still this opportunity, I think, that the public market still doesn't appreciate of private companies don't have the same, you know, return thresholds. And mm -hmm. um, with prices being as elevated as they are now, inflation eats into a lot of that. Um, but you're still able to maneuver. So I just think it's interesting. You guys are so you guys are in the southern portion of the Midland Basin. Um, you it, from my numbers, I, I'm pulling up on production. You're looking at around 15,000 barrels a day, which you've really shot up. You, you did about 28 wells last year. Um, your lateral lengths really increased significantly over 1,000 foot on average. Um, that's more than double the wells you did in 2021. Well performance didn't outmatch the year prior, but I'm wondering, you know, there's some stuff going on there. But I'd love to, I mean, you seem like you were running a gun pretty hard last year. Yeah, um, you know, part of that, and uh, we, we shouldn't be quite that high. There, there might be, uh, I don't know if the numbers were, were, were from, from Embarrass, but, you know, on a gross basis, uh, I guess it's about, um, yeah, this includes, uh, you know, you know what, what we own our uh, royalty owners, probably about 30000 a day right now. Um, but, yeah, they, they, that it is quite a bit higher than we were previously. And, uh, you know, part of it was just a, um, you know, a, a strategy of, uh, we, we had, we had, uh, uh, cooperative commodity prices, uh, you know, last year. So, um, yeah. So we, the there is a uh, you know room uh, you know typical for for private guys. You know, you're you're, you're growing. Uh, that's viewed as higher risk and probably the domain of, of uh, you know private operators. So that's a uh, we do have this kind of natural bifurcation between the publics. You know, low growth viewed as less risky, whether that's right or wrong. And then right. you know the the privates. Um, Doing all the all, all the growth in the Permian Basin, and um, yeah, we just had a. You probably want to bring this up. This that Oventum transaction uh, bought three different end cap companies last uh, last week. Um, you know, really interesting. They're going to go from seven rigs combined between those three end cap companies to two. So that growth is going to be gone. So uh, you know, where where is the where is the growth going to come from in the world? Maybe a little bit from the Permian, but if there's uh, you know, probably not. We probably aren't collectively in a situation where we can meet, uh, you know, serious demand growth uh, with, you know, commensurate production growth um, out of the Permian. Well, that's well, and that's interesting. From so you hit on a few things that we can get into, um, and I w I want to loop back and touch back on your gas production because, um, you know, that that is something I think it wasn't really appreciated. I think last year about how much gas production we had in the U.S. and and what gas was very appealing and especially appealing for private operators um, because gas prices were high um, and you know I think we really see it, it we saw it in Eagleford we definitely saw it in the Permian where you know operators were able to not necessarily I would say target gas go directly after gas but they certainly weren't afraid of it and there was a lot more comfortability of targeting gasier areas and using that gas drive to pull up. This year is obviously going to be a little, obviously a lot different because gas prices are lower. You're seeing that materially in how operators are talking about losing money, obviously on the gas side, or obviously that, that those prices coming down. But still, being close as long as you have takeaway and you're close to, you know, close to basin. But you're, you're absolutely right on the um, this acquisition environment, and I think this is is really important on. And I know we we definitely will talk about the macro and the OPEC cuts and everything. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, what captured everybody's minds a couple weeks ago, in addition to the OPEC plus cuts, was uh, Exxon saying, you know, they're interested in buying Pioneer Nap Resources, which is a huge, massive mega acquisition. Um, whether or not that will happen is, you know, de definitely going to happen is a big question mark. And then, of course, everyone thinks that's the big wave. It's very interesting to me that we would be having a big wave of, and typically the industry does this, but would be having a big wave of acquisitions as we're going into a recession. Um, as OPEC plus is cutting and they're cutting because they know we're going into recession. So there's a lot of different factors here. Um, but the immediate thing in my brain is absolute, that means less, less drilling um, because the public companies are the ones that haven't come back. And the Permian has been this, uh, this amazing story of the rise of the private operators, which everyone called for dead five years ago. Absolutely not dead. I mean, private operators have come back, you know, in, in a huge force. And still, despite, uh, despite the flip in oil prices, I think September last year 
was when the rig count flipped in favor of the publics and there was more rigs, more, more public rigs drilling in the Permian than privates. But it's a lot of pub, private operators, a lot of pipe, private rigs, and more wells being poked in the ground by private operators than, than publics in the Permian. And really, that's the story of growth in the U.S. because um, where you have acreage held by production in the Eagleford, in the Bakken, in the, in the Rockies, you, it's dominated by public operators, and they just have not come back to business. Whereas in the Permian, all you private operators you have. Um, and that has really helped growth come back um, for production growth and really helped. I mean, gas we're at 123 BCF a day of gas production in the U.S. So we had a blip in December, boy, that ripped back in January. Um, and then same for same for oil production, actually, is 12 and a half million barrels a day for oil production in January. So there's this growth story. And I, I think it's really important to talk about with operators because I, I do view things differently in, in how I look at the data. But um the, you said meeting demand, the inability to sort of meet demand, and really the biggest growth driver we have, you know, is the Permian that has been growing. But to, to me, it's still very remarkable when you look at the rig count and you match that with production growth and you look at the activity and that we have not come back to the activity levels we had pre-COVID and we're marching our way back slowly and steadily. And it's pretty impressive, that resilient growth story, which obviously you guys, you privates really contribute to. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. And it, there still will be some some growth. It, there's uh, I, I, there's just a the kind of plane in the gray area between um, you know certain forecasts. There's the EIA forecast. There's um, uh, that calls for you know quite a bit. Um, yeah. And yeah, we just had our, our our governor, you know, Greg Abbott, come out and and you know say hey, you know, right after OPEC cut a million barrels a day. Okay, well. You know, Texas might grow a million barrels a day. That's going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be hard for us to do. Uh, you know, maybe over we're talking, you know, half a decade, you know, five, ten years or something. Yeah, maybe. But um, yeah, the, the the kind of 2017 through well, I'll call it 2015 through 20, uh, you know, early 2020 era of you know 20, 30 percent compound annual production growth out of the Permian. Yeah, maybe we're looking at more like five, five to seven, ten percent, something like that. Which, and yes, the, the private operators absolutely will be the majority of that. Um, um, yeah, ab absolutely. We get all these signals from uh, the large caps and the majors saying that they're just going to defend their dividend at all costs, which means basically zero growth. Uh, so that's what they're telling the market. You know, and and that's interesting. I mean, I. I we we all have seen that right the last few years and i'm um you know it's nice if you're a shareholder and you get those dividends i think these the public operators are really torn and this is where i'm going to bring in the the energy transition um topic because i i think the you know you can actually see it and i show it in charts of when you when you look at the public private split of adding wells back well additions vertical horizontal all of them and you see how you know slow the publics have been a brought bringing wells back despite you know, very strong and resilient prices and the price signals from after, you know, through 2020 and up, you know, that ESG pressure, I think, is really significant. And, you know, the public guys, their kind of answer to this is, well, you know, we need to return our money to shareholders and we need to do all these share buybacks. And so the share buybacks are massive. And, you know, they were very trendy also at previous times. And I really... I think people have to be very cautious about, you know, the, the, everybody looks at the market and says, this is how it will always be. And that's just ridiculous. It's not always going to be like this. Shareholder pressure does, is transient. It does shift. And so the, this, you know, pressure to not drill, um, I think it, we have to be a little bit careful about because, you know, we should be cautious. I know, I've, I don't know if I've said this publicly, but I'm willing to say it now. Look, if you have a, there's a fiduciary responsibility by these public companies. And if you can get sued for climate change, if Exxon can get sued for climate change, we might start thinking about if, um, if, you, if they're leaning so hard into energy transition and they're using that as an excuse not to drill, we have to be a little careful that they're not, you know, actually, are they, are they completely complying by their fiduciary responsibility of, I would like shareholders to get on the board and say, hey, Exxon, it is 80-something dollar oil. Maybe the best use of your cash is put the drill bit back into the ground and give us some returns. Um, mm -hmm. Because that you're not their share price is not necessarily, and I mean all companies uh, have a small amount of stock of Exxon, but that I just hold, I don't trade. Um, I mean, all these companies, you're, you're, they're not getting rewarded in their share price. And so their answer is to 
just pay out these dividends. And that's, that's not a bad idea. But the problem is, is that that's not the only answer. And um, if prices are to come down, we're going to find out really fast and really quick that all the ESG stuff and all the billions of dollars that these companies are throwing, and it is actually billions for many of them, um, and, and increasing that they're throwing to the ESG and the, the um, energy transition stuff, it's not paying off. It won't pay off in a share price performance because they are not loved by the general investor and they're not loved by folks on, on the green space. And that's really hard. Um, so I think we were sort of caught in, in these two worlds of the world absolutely demanding this oil and gas and needing the growth and the, the public oil companies not taking leadership positions, particularly the CEOs, and not being honest that they're what they're producing for the world and that they probably do need to grow. Um, and that they're using a bit of a convenient story of, you know, we need to give our money return to shareholders. I'm pretty sure at these prices at this, for three years, you've been able to give money to shareholders and you could have drilled a little bit more. So I'm just, it's an interesting dynamic we have at play. And as a private, you guys are, I mean, that's you have so much more flexibility. Um, obviously, inflationary environment's harder and you, you got to navigate that. But I think the public mm -hmm. side is, it's a completely unique ballgame right now. Yeah, it is. There's a lot, there are a lot of political constraints. Um, and I talk about yeah, defending that dividend at all costs. Um, it, uh, there might be a little bit more tolerance for a little bit of growth right now than there was, you know, 12 months ago. But uh, anytime someone comes out and says, uh, "Yo, we're going to grow, we're increasing our capital budget," uh, their stock gets sold off like crazy. And that is, that is that's it's reactive. It, it's it's right. perhaps not the um, you, you don't necessarily want to go against that grain, but it takes some conviction if you know that could be the best long-term answer, maybe short-term pain for long-term gain. Um, so far, though, that they've uh, you know certainly um, uh, certainly not uh, gone against the grain there, um, and a lot of it is also uh, you know this this um, you know, big valuation difference between. The, the big the large caps and, and the, the majors and, and the small caps and yep. it looks like over the last year you know, the area free era free cash flow that share prices are most correlated out of all these things to uh, the dividend those share buybacks look like it just created noise it's yeah there, there are fewer shares outstanding than there were a year ago by some companies by a lot but those aren't necessarily the reason why the stocks are doing Right. Uh, there's just these big variable dividends, um, and you look at the depending on how how you value a, you know, an EMT, a small cap versus a large cap. There's this massive, uh, you know, gigantic valuation difference, and um, part of that is it. It seems like you know, you know talk about the the public folks doing what is politically expedient. Perhaps uh, you know some of that is. Um, you know, maybe from the you know, a trend that emerged about five years ago of, you know, don't pay, if you knew a merger, don't pay a premium to the stock right. price. And um, they've not done that. Um, mm -hmm. As that's happened, the bid on those, those, uh, those uh, small and mid caps um, has just plummeted in, in comparison. And it, there are some really good small and mid cap companies out there that, um, you know, it's, you're probably you're trading at two and a half to three times 2023 EBITDA and the, the public counterparts with the same inventory, the same production mix, they're just bigger. And maybe they have a little bit more inventory. They're trading at twice that. Um, and so that the whole idea of zero premium mergers, that makes sense when they have about the same valuation. When you have this gigantic gap, well, go ahead and pay a premium. It's wildly accretive to do that. Mm -hmm. Roll in that inventory if you're afraid of inventory. This inventory from, from the small and mid-cap companies is cheaper than what you can get in the private M&A market, which is, this is really fascinating. What happened last week was, um, you know, the, you know, Oventive buying these, these three end-cap companies, good assets, but right next door, you have High Peak, Laredo, yep. and SM, each with equally good inventory, trading at much lower valuations than those private companies did, that Oventive just so it's really fascinating. And that could, do you think, I mean, that's part, I mean, I think you're right that there's definitely a public reaction on these purchases. Um, and I mm -hmm. think that's, uh, I, there's, 
I have a, a fair amount of criticism, I think, probably for the people in New York who um, and the analysts who, you know, looking at this and, and when we trade, they're trading stocks and they're evaluating this, probably not saying, hey, you should have just bought, a, you know, those companies because they're cheaper. And that's where I think the market and this is where I think it's so important to understand the energy transition and the investor pressure is unfairly penalizing, you know, these mid cap companies. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. If you're going out to buy a stock, you should be looking at these companies because then that's why Devin, and again, I, 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 I'm not trading any of these, but I was happy to, to load up on Devin every, and people say, well, you don't buy them as they go down. Absolutely. I mean, that company is pumping out the dividend like crazy, mm -hmm. um, but they keep getting hammered on a share price performance. And um, mm -hmm. so it's, I mean, and there's, there's a lot of factors in individual companies and, and, and trading behavior and everything, but the dividend is something that's you can always argue okay well we're going to have the dividend and therefore you know people are going to want to have me in their portfolio because i'm paying off a dividend and you know they hold up for a certain long time and and if i'm an exxon they want me for the long hold all those things the share buybacks get trickier for me and i've been i mean i've been on the record for this for a long time way before they were i mean people were buying shares back with debt uh which was not a smart thing to do um so we, we we shouldn't have been doing this and lots of people were doing this and this was bad. So everybody got in the share back by, you know, bandwagon and we all did it. And so we have to be very careful of that. I, I mean, the amount of share buybacks we're doing, and I'm not with the administration thinking we should penalize companies, but at the same time, come on folks, the trend of the billions and billions and billions, absolutely at 80 something dollar oil, you should be hedging at these prices and you should be drilling. Um, because there is one thing like when everybody's looking left, you should be looking right. And if everybody, if every company is doing this, and they're to the point you're making of sort of looking, not seeing the forest of the trees of, uh, or maybe they think they're going to get penalized if they're buying a public company. But it's, it's pretty amazing to think that, you know, there's the mismatch we have in the market right now. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uses of free cash. Um, how much better would those companies have been last year that instead of, um, you know, buying back their, their shares and like, maybe it's still the right, in some way it's the right decision five years from now but right now they'd be a lot better would have been a lot better just acquiring a, a you know, smaller mid-cap public company at, at, a, at a massive discount maybe paying a little bit of a premium which right. wall street's wagging their fingers no 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 they're all they're all afraid to be the first person to do it they right. almost i can guarantee all these big companies have this line of m a just this menu they don't like in their chops it's like well we can't get them because we'd have to pay a premium and we're not supposed to do that so Let's go buy, buy back our shares instead. Well, the first person who does that, yeah, maybe their share price is hurt for a month. Right. But, but then six they, months later, they wake up like, that was the best use of my cash. Absolutely. And <laughs> you know what kills me too is that we think that it's like the, the concept and the reasoning they say for buying back shares is the market is not properly evaluating us. Well, you know what? then you need to start talking differently to the market. And something's got to change because you're telling me that all the share buybacks you're doing, you've done them for two years now, the market's still not properly evaluating you. So tell me how the share buybacks are going to change your share price performance. Tell me how the billions of dollars in renewables that have no return are going to change your share price performance. They're not. The share price performance is largely driven by oil prices right now um, and by a lack of, and the, a super lack of love and being penalized um, in the market. So it means that these companies, and I do include private ones in these because eventually you guys get, your valuations get washed up in this, is that people have to be more vocal about the industry and what the value is of their company um, and why it's okay for them to drill for oil and natural gas. They are CEOs of these companies. They put their head on their pillow at night and they act, ultimately at the end of the day, their company makes money from drilling for oil and natural gas. And, you know, I know engine number one made a doozy with Exxon um, and it's ruined, you know, their mindset and the whole world around, you know, people just can't get a, wrap their arms around this. But I would like to remind people that, you know, the, the CEO of engine number one, who's on multiple boards now and um, was just on CNBC the other day. And she said, Conoco um, instead of Conoco. I mean, and no one corrected her. So it just, it, it's frustrating to me that, you know, exactly. I know. And people laugh when I say that, I but I didn't catch that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you shouldn't so be it's, laughing. It's a, no, it's serious. It's like if I, I wouldn't, you know, if we made a faux pas in the, in the, in the green space that way, but it's, it's clear that, yeah. you know, they don't, if you don't even know the name of the companies that you're on, I mean, 
ConocoPhillips is a pretty big damn company. Um, and, you know, this is, it's, you know, so <laughs> it's, the, these things are serious. And they're also like, how much, how well do you understand these companies? And by the way, has engine number one's board seat performance actually made a difference in the share price? Doesn't seem like it. So, I mean, this is kind of all for naught. And it's, it's really where I think there has to be a come to Jesus moment with these public companies of, of articulating, you know, we know we're in here for the long haul. And that's, that's hard for them. They can't, with the International Energy Agency and everything going on globally um, in terms of uh, the pushback on oil and gas, it's very hard for these oil companies to come out here and say, you're going to need our product for the next 20 years. They know that. Um, and that's where I say, they're, they're, you know, I, I am a little concerned about legal issues down the road of they know this. Um, so, but they're not articulating it. And I think that's the story to investors is that um, most people, if you, I mean, as you know, portfolios and everything, people were pivoting back into oil and gas, even in 2020 and 2021, when they were seeing inflation, you know, you had people saying, this is your in, in, in hedge. And so they don't push it. Maybe they don't tell their folks, hey, we, your, your portfolio is XYZ, you know, um, um, non-renewables or whatever it is. But people are happy to have it as long as it's giving them a return. And I think that that's where the, the public guy's got to come out and say, look, we, we are going to be here for a long time. And there has to be a better articulation because clearly the market is not, the market's not moving with these, with what's going on. It's not moving the share price performance. And it's not being, it doesn't seem like it's reflecting 80-something dollar oil. Yeah, yeah, and there does seem to be. Um, yeah, I kind of halfway think that you know the the super majors, especially the uh, you know shells and, and BPs of the world, that uh, you know a, a little bit more political pressure, which is than than you know the, the American super majors um, to to go you know diversify, get into renewables, and and halfway think they they knew it was going to happen and just needed to be able to show the data, like you know, like you said. I mean, there's all this. This massive rotation of capital, some of it from oil and gas companies, to go buy, go buy you know, renewables assets. Well, if you have a huge rotation of capital trying to buy assets that, and and then the assets on the market don't grow, you know, commensurate with those the number of capital chasing them, the price of those things goes up and the returns plummet to the point where, you know, maybe they did need to go show their their boards and. Political detractors. It was. It wasn't. And I would like to think that the, the, the you know the, the behind the scenes logic. They were actually. They actually knew that was happening. I don't know though. I I, I don't know. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's interesting to see uh, to, to see that playing out real time. There does seem to be a little bit of a quiet rotation back into like okay, you know maybe that was too fast. Um, especially you know, some comments from from uh, Chevron's probably been the most uh, most vocal. Yeah, they were they flipped back nicely. I think you know I I wish that I still don't love the earnings calls because I think that they no. spend ever since the ever since that engine number one debacle with Shell, Chevron, and Exxon in that same day in May, mm -hmm. you know they all sort of flipped and lost their minds and have really catered mm -hmm. and pandered to that. Um, and I think we've had you know you can look at historical case studies of companies who are you know pandering uh, that how their stocks have performed and you know Gosh. the companies that are focused on delivering growth whatever it is whether it's coffee whether it's cocoa you know pop doesn't matter they their share price ends up getting hit so I think you know we have seen uh, we have seen Chevron flip back a little bit and I, I think getting a lot of uh, you know getting letters from the president of the United States uh, you mm -hmm. know ripping on you for your not giving uh, returns to you know your your profits that you're making and not giving those profits right. to the consumer. I think that's had an impact and obviously such a huge dislocation. So it is nice to hear that. I think there's just, mm -hmm. um, and I'm vocal on that. I, Chris Wright and I talk about it. There's not enough leaders in the business. There's not enough leaders in this space that are willing to be vocal about, I think, yeah. to, as I say, uh, being happy that they they put their heads on the pillow at night and realize they produce oil and gas for a living. And we're all fortunate that they produce oil and gas for a living because we use mm -hmm. it. Um, but we just need to be probably more vocal about it. but you I think you're right I think you're you're absolutely right is that they're 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 working through these processes and some of it I, I was talking with the uh, an editor of a major newspaper an energy editor and he was asking me about how real these you know how real is the stuff that people talk about you know the regulatory burdens and this is actually something I'd love to t discuss with you is that I mean I, I was walking them through them how how they are pretty real you know yes yes the the oil the administration the Bureau of Management is approving permits but at a much, much slower pace 
um, than they were in previous years. They're not approved. They're not reapproving permits that are expiring. And so it's a, it's a very different environment. And then the signals coming out of the administration, the not refilling the SPR, um, some serious stuff coming out. And I mean, the EPA rules, proposed rules on this 700 page document are, are massive. Um, the SEC rules, proposed rules on climate change uh, are, is still out there as well. Those are being talked about now. Those include scope three. So I think there really is a burden. And I was reading through the, the Dallas Fed survey and a lot mm -hmm. of that mentioned, I mean, the operators that responded to that did mention the regulatory, I mean, the regulatory uncertainty, mm -hmm. price volatility, you know, wage pressures, pr price pressures, people, you know, getting people in the field, all the compounding that really it was, it was sort of bubbling up. And so, I mean, I know mm -hmm. that several things that's, um, but as a private operator, you can probably talk a little more. What is the regulatory side? How does it feel? Um, and is it, uh, are, how are you navigating it? And this is where, you know, you were in Bloomberg for your stuff with CalPen on methane. So we will definitely yeah. talk about that as well. Yeah. And I mean, just largely there's, um, you know, we're, we're on the Texas side of the Permian Basin, instead of Midland Basin, <clears throat> no federal land. It's all, all private, uh, you know, mineral ownership. Have a little bit with the uh, you know, university lands. And again, these are all, you know, uh, this is all self-contained within Texas and then our egress, our way to the market is via pipeline that is in trust state. We, our long haul pipeline transports from, you know, the upstream, the wellheads in Texas to refineries and export facilities in Texas. So we're, we're insulated from that, uh, you know, largely speaking, which, um, you know, unfortunately in, in Colorado, I mean, since you, you're, you're transporting hydrocarbons across state lines, you, there's FERC, there's regulatory approval. The, you know, there, there's another, that extra layer of, of complication because it does become under uh, the purview of, of uh, you know, the, the, the federal government. So right. it, it is nice to be um, insulated, um, you know, without having to worry about that, uh, you know, especially with, with, with pipelines and things. I can't imagine how frustrated, much more frustrated I'd be than maybe I am on the, on the you know, daily basis, but with some other things, if, um, you know, we couldn't get my, um, you know, our, our hydrocarbons to market. It's something as simple as a pipeline, which is, you know, maybe it's not the most green thing in the world, but it's a hell of a lot better than a bunch of trucks, um, a right. lot more emissions efficient, a lot safer. Um, and, you know, we still need it. So um, I, I, we do feel fortunate that we are totally contained in Texas, and at least we don't have to worry about that. Um, on the, the, the methane piece, and um, you kind of start all this with, um, you know, the, all the, the whole ESG thing. I don't, I don't even know what the, those, those letters stood for, you know, four or five years ago. Um, you know, we, there, there are some things we, we really care about and really should be you know not be political i think it, it's hard to uh or ideological they, these are things um that you know first started off by you know being aggressive recycling water and you know th this is something that that is you know to just remove all the all the political discourse around it you know everyone benefits if we recycle right water, especially if we do it more profitably like instead of drilling a well and bringing up you know a barrel of fossil water um, and then using that to, to complete our well with, and then disposing of that barrel of water, that's expensive. So it's actually, this is, this is benefiting our investors, it's benefiting the, uh, the, the mineral owners, it's benefiting the, counter, the, 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 the county, um, it's benefiting uh, you know, us, our, it makes our jobs easier. Really, everyone wins when, when we recycle our water. It's, it's regardless of your political affiliation or your ideology. So, right. Um, and that's just a, it's such a no-brainer. Um, we got really aggressive with flaring, um, and uh, you know don't don't like to really really don't like to flare. Um, and just only under very in, uh, intense uh, you know one-off situations like uh, you know avoiding catastrophic safety risk will we flare. Uh, we will we have and before and will shut in our wells um, for periods of time to avoid flaring, and that's. That's part of being just a good steward of your of, of your minerals uh, and uh, of, of the resources we're we're managing, and and then making investments to actually midstream investments, you know, to our gathering system, redundant compression. That if you value the the, the put a value on the volumes that are flared, um, that's that's the that's the value. Um, we we 
can use to underwrite these little midstream investments. And no, it's not the sexiest investment in the world. Uh, it takes, takes years to pay back, but it, there is a positive return. Uh, when we, we think about our flaring over a decade timeline, time and uh, it does pay for itself to mitigate and prevent flaring. And, and finally, which, which you mentioned on the, you know, the Cal Penn Bloomberg thing, it, that was just a natural extension of this, of this you know, philosophy of recycling water prevent uh, flaring. Let's do this because it's the right thing to do and it's profitable. Let's put enough thought and energy into it to make it profitable. That way, there's just no reason to not do it. It's, it's, not, it's not even, it ceases to be an ideological issue. And it's just like it, everyone wins maybe for different reasons. But uh, everyone wins. The environmentalist wins because we're not leaving methane. Our investors win because it's a profitable activity to do. Our mineral owners win because they they, they get higher royalties. Um, you know, and, and and we win because you know, we're employees of a of a successful business that that does these things. So um, it it really just it's an alignment of interests regardless of one's ideology, uh, and and that's that's the main reason we got so aggressive in the pivot. No, it, it's um, we've gone from um, uh, you know there's this uh, old way of measuring things, but we call it subpart W, EPA subpart W. Um, it's, it's based on the emissions factors and everything. We talked about this in the Bloomberg thing, but uh, we we took those as, as correct. It's it, this is the edict from the EPA. This is how we measure our our emissions through these emissions factors. We assumed they were accurate. Uh, they are not accurate. Uh, in fact, in some situations, they made things worse, perversely worse. And it's not because they're necessarily bad at their jobs or anything. It's just because the technology did not exist to know how, right. how much more we were leaking. Um, and, you know, we were leaking a lot more than we thought, than the EPA said we were. And then we decided to go capture those leaks. And it's like, oh, look at this. This, this, is, this makes money. We should, we, everyone should be doing this. Um, so... As it pertains to the new regulation on capturing methane, we don't think it's it's necessarily um, we don't think this is a negative. We think this can be a positive. Uh, just I mean, just isolating this 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 one piece of the uh, of the whole uh, you know perception of oil and gas. Uh, this is one thing I don't think the industry has to worry about very much. The other stuff. Uh, where it comes, we, you know, we get we get um, villainized for just being a producer itself, and you know, turn into you know, worst thing that could happen is for for Texas to you know turn into uh, you know California in this situation where you know, there's good resources, you know, great resource, uh, you know, great oil and gas assets, and the suppliers are the ones being victimized because there is a just rampant ignorance of how fundamental it is to uh, everyone's existence, um, and if everyone was aware of their their carbon intensity of their demand, um, you know maybe that would that would sway sentiment a little bit. I I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Um, how much people don't realize they need oil and gas at least at least at the moment in, in the forthcoming uh, a couple of decades. Well, that was a really nice uh, capturing of, and I think we, we I, th I believe we touched on this a little bit in our in the in the previous podcast a year ago um, on some of your methane stuff. And I, this is a great time for me to clarify because I did a podcast last week, and I, I might have sounded like I was a little um, <clears throat> ixnaying the industries for you know doing and capturing stuff, and I'm not. I think it's great, and I, I also think that what you explained there very well is what I would call real ESG. Um, and I think yeah. actually as teeth, you're actually doing something. And, and I love that you talked about, you know, redundant compression, because I think, you know, we don't see enough in what, what most of the market doesn't really appreciate is that in midstream, you need redundancy, no matter what. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, we, pipeline redundancy, especially for gas. I mean, gas, we cannot, you don't truck this stuff, right? You, mm -hmm. um, you have to actually compress it. And so the mm -hmm. reason you tend to have flaring is because you don't have that redundant compression and because mm -hmm. you're reliant on midstream guys who put an investment in 
for pipe that's smaller than when the, the wells come online and when they come down. And it's, it's this natural way the market works. And it ends up, especially in North Dakota, we ended up with a lot of flaring. Now there's Bitcoin mining and all kinds of stuff going on. But the reality is, is that there is loss, especially when gas was 10 bucks in MCF, you know, in August of last year, that's a lot of lost money. And I think uh -huh. that redundant compression is really serious. And then you couple that with, yeah. hey, you know, nobody wants us to flare and this is we can we can be capturing the value on this. Um, I think that's pretty serious. And and so, I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that to capture that gas. So I think that's great. I also think the recycling of the water, um, which is not really well understood by a lot of folks. I think that it, it took a long time for water recycling to even happen because the regulations didn't support it. I mean, um, from my understanding is early in the Permian, lots of folks wanted to recycle water, but you the mm -hmm. ability to transport water to and from location, there was a lot of restrictions on that. And so yeah. the regulatory environment had to adapt to recycling water because you're producing uh -huh. this old salty briny you know stuff from ten thousand feet in the ground i mean this is just as old as the crude oil and you know this it's dirty water and you have to do something with this now we produce every i mean we produce way more water than we will ever be able to frack with the demand it's a fraction i mean we could frack a hundred percent with all the water we produce and we would still have a crap ton left over yep. and so there's probably a lot of movement you know what we could actually do from a recycling standpoint of recycling all of that and what you could actually do with it there's some some you know imp i think restrictions on that it's not as though we're yeah. going to be um drinking yeah. it tomorrow i mean so right there's some, no. there's some restrictions. Exactly. but no you you have a great point and and i think it was uh eog and a lot of others in 2014 that really quick you know part of it was because cost right you made the point very well that recycling water i mean there's a there's a cost to dispose of this water and if you can do it cheaper mm -hmm. and recycle it you know these benefit and so i think you've uh, talked you know between methane and and flaring um and water you know we thinking about the cost side i think is is hugely important um i do have a question on the on the methane side because it is if you look up so if you look up triple crown you will see this uh this thing with calpen and it's a picture with with him and and ryan keys uh which they say left that there's a picture i'll just show you guys this um, and I found it on my, my Bloomberg thing, which is funny, but it says co-founder of fossil fuel company, Triple Crown Resources, to find out how his West Texas company eliminated most of its methane leaks. And, you know, I was uh, I've met with some folks here in Colorado because everybody's talking about methane reductions and measuring mm -hmm. and being able to have those measurements. And so we can export all this natural gas to Europe. Um, and I, I'm not against the actual measuring and against solving these problems. Um, I'm, you know, concerned about the. You, that Europe is requiring us to have these measurements when they weren't requiring uh, Russia to have those measurements per se. Um, and so kind of people who are doing it better always get penalized. And Canadian oil yeah. sands, when they were transparent about their GHG emissions, they get penalized. And so the countries in which we can produce this the be best way possible with the standards, we're penalized for it. And so it isn't that we, you shouldn't be doing it right. It's just that there's also implications of are the are the are the regulations intended to make you better and to help you thrive as triple crown or are they intended to eventually put you out of business and i'm pretty yeah. concerned that there's an eventuality of it is there's a lot of folks on when it's politically driven which much of it is is to put you out of business and um it's like we'll take your gas now we're not going to sign a long-term contract for it so it's really hard to say well we want all these regulations pushed on the methane we need you to hit all these metrics but we're also not going to sign long-term contracts so then we don't have investment on the lng side things get really messy here and there's a whole you know ecosystem in oil and gas with the investment piece so i think this methane bit is is it's not that i'm against any of it I, it's just that you know the difficulties of i know that for a lot of new production it's pretty easy right uh, for my understanding mm -hmm. is to once you know what you're doing it's pretty easy to solve these it's pretty cost efficient i'm i'm told that the older production is the stuff that has is more expensive the stripper stuff is more expensive to deal with the methane leaks is that correct Yes, exactly. Older facilities that um, you know were built before Quad O A, uh, certainly before Quad O B, uh, when this stuff became best practices. Like if you have an old, you know, uh, old field with 50 vertical wells that were all drilled in the 90s and going to you know, a, an, old, an old tank battery. It's not probably not going to have a vapor recovery unit. Uh, it's going to have uh, you know gas pneumatic. It's going to be all these things. But yeah, that retrofit. It's, uh, that that is the most marginal, um, you know, that uh, getting preventing those leaks. The the way the whether this was intended or not, I don't think it was intended, but the way it was structured uh, from the EPA, um, 
you know, the, the, the next generation methane rule, those very low rate wells are going to be, uh, depending on how you want to monitor them, they're all going to be almost de facto exempted. Um, we're talking about detection thresholds and uh, being able to quantify the leak. And there's probably end up going to be a choice where you have um, you know, a type of, um, uh, you, you can choose a technology to, to detect your leaks that has a detection threshold that can't detect lower than a certain volume. You know, if, if your well or your battery is below that volume, it's de facto exempted. It doesn't say that anywhere, but it's going to be exempted. So, um, and the, that, those are the types of things, it, it, if you look at, um, you know, it, it, if the concern really is keeping methane in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide equivalent, if that really is the, the concern, our dollars as a society should, should be putting, uh, be put towards those which have the, the, the largest impact of, of either preventing CO2 equivalent from reaching the atmosphere or removing it. And spending a lot of money on those tiny little leaks is, you know, dollars per CO2, ton of CO2 abated. It's very, very poor. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily inconsistent with, with uh, the, 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 the stated goals. But um, it, it's really interesting that the nuance, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out those, uh, the, the new methane rule and, and uh, uh, yeah, at least that by itself taken in isolation. Yeah, I, I hear you on perhaps the slip, slippery slope uh, into uh, you know, a you know, broader theme, but taken in isolation, it, I don't think uh, it's something that uh, the industry needs to be um, needs to be worried about. Right, and um, I think it's also state st statewide. I mean, here yes. in Colorado, there's a, a tendency to just plug the well, and I also yeah. think well, we do have to think of a wider. We, when we started this podcast off. You know, we were talking offline briefly about the macro, which we'll come to, but um, we started talking about the ability to grow production. And I'm pretty, you know, in this world where we have so much geopolitical volatility and uncertainty, I am not, uh, I am not going to, I've never been a fan of plugging wells, you know, I mean, because I think we have a tendency to plug wells, be, we, we raise our arms and say this is not economic and, you know, how well has the economics actually been studied. Um, but I mean, when you when you plug a ton of wells and we think cumulatively what smaller production adds up to, um, and we also think about, you know, what the ability to enhance production from older wells, I just think that we have to sort of put a pause button on there. So I think your point is, is, is you know, very valid of, uh, certain states, I think, are imposing, you know, and pushing yes. operators to sort of plug these and be done with it. Um, and that yeah. is a tendency to push. It's, it's uh, you know, going against the oil and gas, right? And, and just in general, yeah. it's it's that we'll just get rid of this and it's our starting point to get rid of it. There's a lot of money coming from the administration in different forms and has mm -hmm. with COVID uh, to P&A wells and uh, folks took mm -hmm. it. Um, I just think that... Uh, <laughs> Whether you took money for PNA during COVID and then you plugged your wells like they did in North Dakota, I'm pretty sure yeah. one a couple of us could probably find that a couple of wells of those were economic and that maybe oh, at eighty sure. dollars oil we could have made money. So I just yeah, think those are, yeah, yeah, you're you're right. But different state regulators, yeah, very different uh, way of looking at these these issues. And, and yeah, I'm, our reference point because the the federal rule is so much more strict than anything the railroad commission right. requires. Um, that we're following the, the federal rule, whereas folks in Colorado, um, they really have to look at what the state rule is and, right. and where that where that's more strict. And often, with, especially on the methane side, it is going to be more strict. Right. Um, and and like it, being in Texas, we just we just don't have that. We don't have to uh, you know look at those two uh, you know standards as as uh, uh, you know having to follow both of them. No, I, that's that's it's a good point bringing up different jurisdictions. That this is a very different environment for many of the jurisdictions. And I mean, I think, and you guys are really forward thinking on this because I do hear folks that are on, you know, you know, multiple. Um, I would say nonprofits and various organizations that are really pushing to to uh, on a 
myriad of levels on pushing for uh, mm -hmm. CO2 emissions reductions and methane. And I've heard comments from them, um, and I won't I won't say the names because it was under Chatham House rules when we had the discussion. But they were they were mentioning how uh, it was hard to get operators in the Permian, especially the privates, to to take this stuff seriously. And obviously, you yeah. guys are are different to that. But you know, it did it did make me think of I and I was trying to articulate to this gentleman that hey, they're they're it's not that you know these people are just want to rip through these emissions and are just don't care about anything, but they have a lot of other things on their plate as well. And, and we were talking about, you know, labor and inflation and it's sort of like, you know, you're hitting a point, especially during the course of last year that um, nobody's going to want to flare gas at the prices that we had. No one's going to want to, you know, actively get rid of this stuff, but there are a lot of other things that, uh, pull a person's day-to-day -day. I mean when you're running a business especially if you're private there's a lot of other factors going on and depending on who your PE backer is and I mean uh, there's just a million different things you're thinking about and especially as inflation I'm um, just getting people into the field um, dealing with the inflationary environment getting your stuff on your location um, I'm not sure that all these things level up you know to oh we have to be dealing with this and so um, it, there's a difference especially when this play has so many private operators and these are small individual unique companies that have a lot of different factors that they have to deal with it's just not something that everyone's you know this is our number one priority and we have to do this yeah. at all costs so it gets a little bit tricky and i, I so i, I sure. was trying to answer back to these these entities that were trying to wrangle these guys and saying it was yeah. difficult to wrangle them to get on the same page and i thought well that's because they're dealing with you know a lot of other factors um sure. and it's complicated business it, it is yes and and uh, that was one of the reasons for being kind of you know trying to be vocal about it is is um you know the the immediate reaction uh which is understandable what we're talking about methane regulations you know greenhouse gas uh, scopes one through three is to just look at this like oh gosh like you know, a lot of the a lot of the world does not view us in, in a favorable light and uh, you're looking at this as like a you know being punished or being um you know yeah, it was basically just being punished. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a stick. The motivation is to prevent from getting punished and from getting shamed. Um, and that's not, it's not a very comfortable place to do anything to start a project. Is well, I'm only doing this so I don't get punished. Right. Um, you know, we're we're all, you know, we're all adults, but you know, we we all have, you know, we're kind of all just barely evolved children in some respects. So I don't think humans ever grow out of that. No one wants to be no. shamed into doing something. Right. So that's why we got uh, pretty aggressive about uh, just telling people, telling the story. It's just like, hey, it makes money. Like, uh, yep. don't worry about the stick. Like, go chase right. the carrot. Right. Like, there's a reward out there, monetary reward. Let's make this interesting. Let's make this like, hey, here, here's a bunch of profitable projects we can go do. And looking at it that way, and and by doing that, you just sort of you take care of all the the punishment stuff because you're 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 not you're over complying because it's profitable and you don't have to worry about the regulations because well i would do this anyway even without the regulations. so it's yeah it, it is it is hard and even though it's in other states like you know like in colorado probably still doing this to, because of the stick treatment they don't want to be punished they don't want right. to so um you know there will be more and hopefully there will be more stories like this where you got good quantification, good measurement, and, and create a good, uh, uh, you know, just just numbers. It's just a project. It's a profitable project, and uh, we'll we'll end up with another white paper out there so people can you know, look at our numbers and how we derive them. And it, it's fairly black and white uh, that that it is at least for us it's profitable. Yeah. No. That, and that that makes uh, it makes great sense. And um and I appreciate the feedback. And uh, so there's there's two things I would like to to wrap up on or or you know bring this full round because I, I still want to talk to you a little bit about what that inflationary environment looks like. Um, if that's, if it, we're seeing that come down a little bit, um, I, I, you know, I, I talked to a lot of different companies, work with a lot of different service and, and service companies and operators and, you know, staring at the rig count chart. And just by staring at that, I can tell it, it I'm guessing on day rates, the rigs might've come down a smidgen, but on the frack side and, and actually reading through all the fed comments, the Dallas fed comments is funny because the, the comments between the service providers and the operators is the same story. It's always been, which is 
the service providers have too high prices and the operators are saying, well, the service providers haven't recognized, you know, the service guys are saying, operators don't recognize we, we got to keep our prices high. And then this, the operators are saying the service guys don't recognize the market's declining and we need lower prices. And the service guys are like, yeah, we can't lower prices. We just got them to where we needed them to be. And so you got all these externalities. Um, and so mm-hmm. the, I, I want to, I, maybe we'll just, we'll just go there. Cause I, I want to loop back to some EPA stuff and the G7. Um, but curious on the, on this inflationary side, I know last year was a, you know, a really daunting year for a lot of folks. Um, I, it took about a, halfway into the year for me to hear consistently from operators and, and from people in the field that, you know, multiple times people just were not getting people quitting um, uh, in the middle of a job or and not being able to get a frack fleet or not getting in a truck for not a frack fleet, sorry, not be able to get a, a trucker for, for uh, sand or something, wh- whatever it was. And it would cause them a delay um, of actually completing these wells. And then I was hearing that, you know, people, it was the actual um, the level and quality of people that just weren't trained up enough. And I, you know, we've had so much efficiency in drilling and comp- I mean, especially in drilling from 2020, 2021, that I think in 2022, I was finally starting to hear mid-year people saying, crap, are the people we have, um, some of these new people are just not up to speed. And so we've actually slowed down our operations a little. Um, and it wasn't massive. And but it was enough that I had heard it anecdotally a few times. So I'm just curious from the inflationary side, labor side, what are the big like what are you actually seeing and feeling and how is it working throughout through the system now? Yeah, and it did um it, it has slowed down the, the inflation. If anything, we have some very fairly detectable deflation going on on a few right. items. So um, you know, one one of our wells, you know, might be about five percent less expensive than it was last quarter. Uh, you, know, you know, 90, 120 days ago, uh, you know, something like that. Um, and so, that, you know, that, that's, it's good to see that it's, it's not, it's a, you know, worst case scenario, it's plateaued. Uh, and that does have a lot to do with, you know, commodity prices not being as, as, as nice, especially on the gas side. Um, you know, and, and there, there will be, um, you know, hopefully it, it, this volatility isn't good for anyone. Um, and, um, us included, uh, you know, the, the folks in the Haynesville, you know, Permian's just massive, uh, you know, supply growth for natural gas, and then Haynesville grew like crazy. And guy, yeah, I'm glad we're not a just a dry gas operator. <laughs> that would not be that would not be fun. Um, but yeah, we, we are seeing, uh, a, a, if anything, a tiny bit of deflation. We don't think we're we're atypical. Um, yeah, obviously, we the the industry needs service companies to be able to make money. We, we, we need them to be healthy. We rely on them. Um, to, you know, they're a vital part of the supply chain, equally as vital, vital as the E&P or the pipeline company. Uh, so, we, you know, we, we need them to be healthy financially. Uh, but there, there is, you know, without getting, you know, who's, who should be cutting costs where? It, like there, there is margin compression big time. Our revenue is down. Our costs are up. Our free cash flow is what we, you know, just that's our return. Right. Uh, especially if you're not growing back to your shareholders. If you don't have any margin, you have less incentive to grow. It's just, I said, a very painful math problem. <laughs> when you when you get to that point, you don't have any margin left. Um, so yeah, you, you just cancel capex and defer capex, and um, hopefully that the, the the pain is minimized on, on everyone's side. So you know, without the volatility. So, yeah, it, it's definitely there this year. It's still it's still good. Uh, yeah, grand scheme of things at, at the moment in the Permian, but uh, uh, you might go from good to, to pretty good if if uh, uh, gas prices improve a little bit. Yeah, and I, I mean I think that's really where it's something I, I always talk to folks about. You know, when people are asking questions about the health of the business, and I always say that it's sort of it's always stability and predictability, sort of for any business, yeah. and that's why regulatory stuff is so important. But it's also yeah. price, and I think there's something everybody uh, the the this administration has painted the industry as so evil of wanting these high prices, and you know, there's not a single operator or service provider I can even talk to that you know was really actually excited when OPEC paused cut and oh prices are spiking up because uh, most folks are they, they don't want this volatility would be a lot would be in a lot healthier spot if we were at say consistent 70 to 75 dollar oil yes it's a little bit less profitability but everything comes down and i think that and we need higher gas prices because last year having a spike at 10 bucks in mcf i mean 
we did have wildcatters. I mean, we had everyone stepping out going crazy on the gas side. We had we have 123 BCF a day in natural gas production, and now and mm. we you know had a very warm winter and gas prices came down. And it, you know, I think it's funny if you it's not funny, but I mean, if you actually just chart rigs and prices, you need to be charting oil rigs and gas prices because actually there's a the shift in the handful of those. It's a decent handful. It's a chunk of rigs that that actually change because they're their exposure to that gas and that has helped. You know, I think a little bit in terms of the crazy inflationary, we just don't have enough rig, everything. So it slows things down. But yeah, it's really hard in dry gas and it's it's so easy to produce and we, we have so much of it. Um, it. It just matters. So I think that these price stability and price, I think, is is super key for everyone. Um, and that gets us into these. So two critical things. And I know we're running up on time. Um, so we can debate whether we should split this in two. But so two things. Um, and this is why I want to close of that. You know, it's why I think the regulatory piece matters so much um, is because we do have a disconnect between sort of what happens in the field on a day to day and the great stuff you guys are doing and how well things are running and everything versus what's sort of going on top down from what's coming out of the White House and the EPA and the administration. And obviously what's going on with the G7. Um, OPEC plus did their cut. We're we spiked to 83 bucks. Now we're down. We're 80. There's lots of pressure from, you know, Fed moves and inflation. And that's that's sort of moving oil prices around. But we're 80 bucks. Clearly, OPEC plus cut going, thinking they wanted to hit offshore covering. We're heading into recession. Lots of issues going on there. Um, but the EPA came out with this massive 700-page document last week on it's the Biden-Harris, quote, Biden-Harris administration proposes strongest ever pollution standards for cars and trucks to accelerate trans transition to a clean transportation future. And, you know, it's something that I, I know it's it's a little harder for a lot of folks in the E&P space to necessarily focus on the downstream, but this is a major, major piece of legislation that if this gets implemented, you know, it, refiners will go out of business in the U.S., but so will upstream producers um, because it's going to be very messy if those refiners go out of business when we, you can't directly send this to market. And so this is just a, a basically massive agenda to um, accelerate electric vehicles, shove them into the grid as fast as possible, shove them in and accelerate the adoption or force the adoption, sorry, and then take this internal combustion engine vehicles off the road. And this does get into the sort of end user scope three emissions and everything, which I know most oil companies have, have definitely pushed back on. Um, but it's it's really serious. It's 700 pages. It's ridiculous. It's probably not legal. It's going to get a lot of pushback and everything. So it's, it hasn't hit everyone's radar, um, probably hmm. as much as it should. Um, but it's 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 something that I throw out there of, of thinking that it's not something that a private operator or even a public you think about it's, this isn't a tomorrow thing, but it's, it's near to reality. And it's where I, I think that if folks are, are bold enough as you guys are to be talking vocally about flaring and methane, it's also being able to uh, capture these types of regulations and explaining why mm -hmm. they're good or why they're bad um, and why they don't make sense in, in the, in this world. And to that end, and before I let you want to comment on this, so we mentioned this before, but I have to say this because this is insane. This is the G7 communique. This came out yesterday. So this is G7 is in Japan. They are, um, I don't know how much anyone, you or, or other folks have followed this, but there's been quite a bit of pushback from Japan on on G7 communications with regards directly to energy. So they've been wanting to talk about LNG. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks that if you talk to folks in D.C., the White House specifically has pushed back on Japan wanting liquefied natural gas, asking, saying they want G7 communication. This has been going on for a year that they want it to say they want investments in oil and natural gas. The White House, the Biden administration, largest producer of oil and gas in the entire world, does not want it to say we want, we need investments in oil and gas, which is amazing. It's pretty anti-American in a lot of ways, pretty anti-American energy security, pretty anti-energy security globally. But anyway, so the document comes out. I'll send this to you. Um, but it's G7 Energy Environment Minister's Communique. It's long. Um, I, I almost made it all the way through it. And it's almost at the back end. So there's lots of stuff about you know, energy transition, um, lots of inclusion in the energy transition, women. Um, OK. All right, my apologies, folks. That was my uh, German Shepherd barking. I'm pretty sure I was getting alcohol delivered that didn't get delivered because um, Axel was barking at the, at the person. And apparently, um, Ryan's German Shepherd woke up to this noises of Axel as well. Um, but uh, what I was saying was this, so this G7 communication comes out. Um, I mean, it's worth, it's worth reading. It is extremely um, ideologically progressive. There's a lot of stuff in here that 
is sort of a little bit mind-blowing because this is supposed to be about energy and it's, it's very inclusive of everyone and everything, but not very inclusive of energy. Um, and so it's all the way at 69, it's toward the back end, it's on page 27 of a 36 page document where they finally get to natural gas and LNG. And of course, this is in the midst of energy crises and we're in war in Ukraine and things that Japan cares about seriously. Japan had Fukushima, you know, they got rid of a lot of their nuclear, they're trying to build that, bring that nuclear back. Uh, last week, uh, Germany just shut down three of their nuclear power plants. Um, lots of crazy stuff going on there. But so they say natural gas and LNG. Um, quote, we recognize that Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine impacts energy markets and supply security globally and has intensified competition in securing resources. High energy prices and inflation have had a negative environmental, economic, and social impact on the economies and people's lives all over the world, especially in developing countries, through preventing them from securing affordable energy supply and the need for increasing the price of fertilizer and food. In this particular context, so they clarify this, in this particular context, and recognizing the primary need to accelerate the clean energy transition through energy savings and gas demand reduction, investment in the gas sector can be appropriate to help address potential market shortfalls or provoked by the crisis, subject to clearly defined national circumstances and if implemented in a manner consistent with our climate objectives and without creating lock-in effects, for example, by ensuring that projects are integrated into national strategies for the development of low carbon and renewable hydrogen. So, I mean, kind of crazy because this is the one comment on 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 natural gas you know investment which doesn't even say investment or basically says investment but it's very qualified of you know yes you can maybe in a unique circumstance if it's in line not nothing with oil investment um so i think it's really it's it's really damning and pretty terrifying from a global energy security standpoint that we can barely even mention natural gas investment within a G7 communique document. And it's being pushed back heartily by the U.S. and Europe um, to not have mm. this stuff in here. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When, when was this uh, When was this communique? Uh, last night. This came, this came out last night. Last night. Interesting. Wow. I know. I, I've, uh, thank you for the heads up. I, uh, yeah, I'll have to go, have to go check it out. But uh, yeah, that's... Uh, Huh. Right. It's like, where's the, you know, hundred years from now, yeah, I would expect, uh, you know, the market share of total energy supplied in the world to be, uh, you know, oil and gas to be lower than it is today. Um, but, um, yeah, maybe, maybe not completely left out of the conversation. So, I, <laughs> ooh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, and it's just something I throw out, not that you have to have a particular reaction or anything. It's just something I throw out of that I think it's, I do, I still think it's important. Um, you know, your day-to-day -day business is not, you know, how oil prices swing doesn't, you're not changing your day-to-day -day business, nor are you impacting your day-to-day -day business on something like this. However, I do think it's increasingly important for privates and publics and mid-caps mm -hmm. to really appreciate that stuff like this matters right. um, because it comes down the pipeline mm -hmm. and we have to have more folks in the industry articulating what they do and how it's uh, what why there's a need to have your oil and natural gas production um, being produced and on the market. Sure. So no, no, exactly. Yeah, that energy security absolutely vital. Um, what 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 I thought we had a good example of that last year, but you know, maybe we need another one. Then. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, hopefully not acute. Um, yes. Um, and this has been a year on. Well, um, Ryan, I've taken a lot of your time. Both of our German Shepherds have, have woken up um, during the yeah. course of this, this hour. Um, but mm -hmm. thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And we'll be having you back soon, hopefully. Or in, in the right. next yeah, Thanks for having me on. All Appreciate right. it.